We bring the news. We bring the action. We bring it live. This is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Alon Joseph, and our topic is time. The valuableness of life does not depend on its length, but on its quality, is what Viktor Frankl says. Welcome back, Alon. Some of you will remember hearing Rabbi Alon and Norman Jackson on this show talking about their program, Live Your Life, which is a program for corporations, for the employers and employees. And by the way, Rabbi Alon, I've been hearing very good uh, reports about it still. How is it going? Fantastic. Thank you. It's so lovely to be back here with you. I'm so excited and so honored and privileged. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'll tell you why you were invited. I mean, obviously, I would have invited you back anyway. But I have especially invited you here today because the the four women's group, the group of women, um, you gave a talk to them um, two weeks ago on time. And my daughter Caroline was there. And the next day she phoned me. She said, Mom, you've got to phone Rabbi Alon and get him back on your show. She said he spoke on time. It was absolutely incredible. They Apparently you blew all those women <laughs> away with what you had to say. Thank you. Um, what were you actually talking about? So it was a topic that uh, I've been developing for many, many years. It started many years ago when I was teaching at King David's School. And I'll share with you how it came up a bit later. But it was a topic about the value of time and appreciating this concept of time. We live it, but are we truly living time? And what is time all about? And what is life all about? And it was just this concept of trying to understand and trying to make the most of our life and our time in this world. And it was called Make Every Second Count. That was really the the topic and the title of the talk. And I just really spoke about this concept of do we appreciate and do we value this thing that we call time. And I don't think we do. I remember once reading a, something which says time is the most valuable thing a man can spend. But how <laughs> yes. do we spend it? Exactly. And that's really the biggest challenge that we have is how do we spend our time? Are we conscious of it? Are we aware of what's happening around us? Or do we just pass through it really? And that was really what got me thinking about this topic many, many years ago. And it's been something that's been a, a big passion of mine. Of um, At the end of the day, please God, it's 120 years. But it's not a long time in the bigger scheme of things. And what have we achieved with, those, with that time that we've been privileged to be, to be given in this world? Absolutely. It's so true. And, and I do think that time means different things to different people at different stages of their lives. And also, if you're ill, time has a different meaning. Um, Very true. You know that um, Rabbi Tversky in his book, Waking Up Just in Time, says, Time can't be hurried in spite of our technological age. Many things simply take time, like pregnancy, changing one's personality or emotional makeup and recovering from addictions. And that is very true. We can't change, hurry those up. We might be able to modify seasons and everything with climate changes, but those things we have not been able to change. Time is as it is. And time will be like that. 
And it's how we deal with time. It's how we relate to it. It's how we think about it. And it's how we spend it. So tell me a bit about your talk. Tell me a bit about what you... So I started off the talk in a very interesting way, and that was with the definition of, of life. And I asked people, if you were writing the dictionary, how would you define the word life? What is life? And, and, you know, and we went around the room and we discussed it. And, and it's a strange thing how when you put people on the spot to come up with a definition, people struggle. And I said, well, we're all alive. Yes. And we, and we live every day. So how would you define what it is? And it was interesting how people had to spend time thinking about it and contemplating and wondering. So I shared with them some definitions that I'd found. I went to a dictionary and I looked it up. And um, I'll, I'll share with you some of the definitions that, that I found. The first one was life, the quality which distinguishes a vital and functioning being from a dead one. And I thought, well, if I'm trying to find meaning in life, that definition doesn't really help me very much. It, all it tells me is that if you're dead, well, then you're not alive. And that doesn't really mean, you know, if I'm looking for meaning and I want answers and I want to go to the dictionary to find that, that hasn't really helped me very much. So I continued looking and, and I found another one. And the more I thought about it, the more petrified I became through this definition. And the definition was life, the period of usefulness of something. And I thought, wow. Obviously, we're not talking about a battery or something which has a certain lifespan, which is an inanimate object. We're talking about life, human beings. And it says the period of usefulness of something. And I thought, well, if that's true, then there's a lot of dead people walking around. <laughs> because if you think about it, who's useful? How does society define who's useful and who's not useful? Is the guy on the side of the road who wants to wash my windows, is he useful? Or would I prefer that he wasn't there? So if we're going to define the definition of a of, of, of period of usefulness of something, if someone is not useful, then that's great. We don't need them around anymore. We can just get rid of them. What an awful thought, <laughs> isn't it? Exactly. So I shared with them something that was rather scary and fascinating. And um, I shared with them an article written by Sir Francis Crick. Now, Sir Francis Crick was the discoverer of DNA. He won the Nobel Prize for it. He got knighted for it. It must have been an incredible intellect. Yeah, so he, he Almost found, like an Einstein. Yeah, I mean, you know, a modern day. And he wrote an article in Nature magazine. Now, Nature magazine is the scientific journal. If you get published in Nature magazine, you're, you're someone. That's, that's, the, that's the magazine that you want to be published in. And they asked him in 1968, he wrote this article and, and it was titled Population Explosion versus Food and Energy Shortage. Too many people, not enough food. How do you solve the problem? So I went around the room and I asked him, what would you do? And everybody, uh, genetic, uh, genetically modified, let's grow more things. Let's find practical ways to solve the problem. Too many people, not enough food. Well, we can find ways to produce food, chemicals. or This was, this was Sir Francis Crick's answer in his, in, in his article. He said this, we cannot continue to regard human life as sacred. The idea that every person has a soul and that his life must be saved at all costs should not be allowed. If, for example, it was considered to be legally born at two days old, it could be examined to see whether it is an acceptable member to human society. It might also be desirable to define a person as legally dead when he has passed the age of 80. That's what he said. That is shocking. <laughs> and the first time I read that, I thought, no, combi. But Especially I researched from someone who's got the Nobel Prize yeah. for his discovery for DNA. And, exactly. Oh. And you would never expect a person to say something like that. No, so no. I thought to myself, think about what he's saying. A child is only legally born at two days old. 
which means, and it reminded me of the one-child rule um, in China that you could only have one child. And they had a law that said as follows, that you could have an abortion up until a week after birth. Say it again. An abortion <gasps> up until a week after birth. So the baby could be a week old. Yes. And you can abort you the baby. Yes, it's not murder. It's an abortion. Why? Because oh. you can decide whether you want a boy or a girl. And you've got a week after the baby's born to decide that. And it's called an abortion, not murder. Oh. And that's what he's saying as well. He says a two days old. Let's see if it will be an acceptable member to human society. How do you see a child that's two days old if this is going to be an acceptable member to human society? And his other point is well, a person at the age of 80. Uh, on the 80th birthday, you don't wish them happy birthday. You wish them good night oh. because it's their last. So what are you evaluating human life on? Well, exactly. So that was my definition, and that's why it scared me so much. The life, the period of usefulness of something, he's defining someone after the age of 80 is not useful anymore. Uh, thank God I had grandparents, and, I, and my grandmother is still well over 80 into her 90s. My grandfather lived into his 90s. Thank God. You know, imagine that. It, the wisdom that they passed on to other generations. Like, at the age of 80, sorry, you're not useful anymore to society, and therefore there's not enough food to sustain you, and you're just an oxygen thief that we're just going to get rid of you. That was his definition, and that's what he said, that a person at that age is not useful. Mm. So those two definitions scared the living daylights out of me. So I had to continue looking. So I I shared with them a third definition that I thought, this is beautiful. And the third definition was life to pass through or spend the duration. And I thought to myself, that really encapsulates, are we passing through and spending the duration, or are we actively living life? Yeah. If you think about it, how many actions a day are we conscious of while we're doing them or do we run on autopilot? I get up, I get dressed, I can drive from point A to point B and not even remember the direction or the path I took to get there. Not even notice the seasonal changes or anything along the way. Exactly. So I'm just passing through. And research says that between 70 to 80% of our daily actions are run on autopilot. Which means I'm just passing through and spending the duration, but I'm not actively living life. I'm not actively living the time that I've got. I'm just passing through. And that to me was a big wake up call of a definition. So I was thinking about it. Yeah, Can that's I just really tell what you it is. something that Warren Buffett said, which I found quite interesting, because if you think of what he's achieved, he's actually also thinking, so he must live a lot in, in the present in order to achieve what he's done, but also in the future, obviously. And he said someone is sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. So as you say, there is usefulness in every moment of our lives. We might not see it in what we're doing now. But look at that. Someone is sitting in the shade of a tree that was planted a long, long time ago. And that can be wisdom from other people. It can be learning from so much of the past histories. There's a continuity that there's so much depth in that message. And it's true. But we have to be conscious of it. We have to be aware of it. We have to be mindful of what's happening around us. And and accept that there is a responsibility to the time we have to spend here. Exactly. And we never know what that time is. We have a purpose. We have a mission. We have a task. Mm -hmm. We have to fulfill it. And the only – we have time. That's all we have. And are we using the most of our time to fulfill those missions and those purposes that we have? You had an amazing poem there that you read to the, the, the woman. I would like you to, to read that to me and then to actually go back to 
what you next said to them that hooked them. <laughs> with pleasure. So actually how, how I introduced the poem was with an incredible social study that was done in Washington, D.C. And what they did is one of the world's greatest violinists, his name is Joshua Bell, he played out to two nights to, to, to sell out crowds of minimum tickets of $110 and above, packed audiences, and they wanted to do a social experiment. They took him, they put him in plain clothes, and they put him in a subway station in Washington, D.C., one of the busiest subway stations in peak hour traffic in the morning. And they said that between, in 45 minutes, between three and a half to 5,000 people walked past him. And he was playing on his violin. He was playing one of the most beautiful pieces and one of the hardest pieces ever written on one of the world's most expensive violins. And they wanted to see if people would stop and listen. Now, out of those 5,000 people, guaranteed there were many people who had paid hundreds of dollars to come and listen to him the night or the two nights before. So they put him in there in the morning and he plays. And they show you the full 45-minute clip. And in the full 45 minutes, five people stopped to listen to him. That was it. Only five people. Most people just walked straight past him. And what they said at the end of their research, what they said is that they said this, if we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best piece of music ever written, how many other things are we missing? We get so caught up in our own lives. We get so caught up in our own time. Do we stop and, and, and be aware of our surroundings? Are we looking at things around us? Are we cognizant of what's around us? Are we just so caught up in our own minds? I'm rushing and rushing and rushing. And how many things am I missing around me? How many so things am I not aware of? Do you think that the fact that he he was given those standing ovations the, the few nights before were because people for a moment stopped in time to, to actually really listen? Well, they went there to listen to him. So in the subway. There was a purpose. There exactly. Too. In the subway, you're not expecting one of the world's best violinists to be there. No. And that was the whole point of it is that in the places where you least expect things is where you might find some of your greatest answers. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and that was the and that was really the whole social study is that here you've got a person who's playing, but you just walked straight past him. Did you stop and even just listen? Had you stopped and listened just for 10 seconds, you would have noticed that this was different. You would have picked up on something that said, hold on a sec. I recognize that there's something unique, but most people just walked straight past. They didn't stop and listen. Those people who stopped said, hold on a sec, I, re I remember that. That rings a bell. But we get so caught up in the world that we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. We're not stopping. We're not listening. We're just running on autopilot or, we, or we're on this treadmill or we're on that hamster wheel and we're just running and running and we're not aware of what's around us. So I shared with them this beautiful poem that you mentioned, and it was really a lot of, a lot of bad poems, and I've been finding things over the years, yeah, and I've collated many, many together. things. So this was the poem I shared with them about the value of time. Talk slowly for it. Okay. I will do. It says… <laughs> uh, just hang on a sec. We've got a break for an ad break, and then we'll do the poem. Perfect. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Alon Joseph, and we are talking about the topic, time, the most fascinating topic. And he is about to read us a poem, a beautiful poem. He's just told a story about Joshua Bell playing in um, uh, Washington, Washington D.C. Subway, subway yes, on his violin. Yes. So this was the poem. 
And it says, to realize the value of a year, ask a student who failed a class. To realize the value of a month, ask a mother who gave birth to a premature baby. To realize the value of a week, ask the editor of a weekly newspaper. To realize the value of an hour, ask the friends who are waiting to meet. To realize the value of a minute, ask a person who missed the train. To realize the value of one second, ask the person who, have, who just avoided an accident. To realize the value of one millisecond, ask the person who won a silver medal in the Olympics. Treasure every moment that you have. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Beautiful. That's why I wanted you to read it slowly. <laughs> I actually love it. You know that um, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, said that our lives are governed by time, whether we like it or not. We live in time and we die with time. We believe time is ours to save and to lose. And that timing, we believe, is everything. Um, but as she says, we can't buy time. But we talk about spending it. Yes. And we're going to come to that point. And I love that because do are we spending it? And how are we spending it? If you were given a gem and a diamond or something, the most precious object that you could imagine, how would you spend that? Would you just leave it lying around? Would you look after it? If you were given a great treasure, that's how we have to view time. We have to view time as something that is so special and so precious. And not something to waste, but something to make the most of, because that's what it is. It is something that is incredibly special and precious. Something to actually be involved in. Yes, very much so. Mm. Not as an outsider looking in, but no. actually be part of it, partake of time. And, and I shared with them one of the most amazing books that I've read, and it's called Chasing Daylight. If you've never read it, I you should read, read it. it. It's written by a man. His name was Eugene O'Kelly. And um, he was the chairman and CEO of KPMG in America. He had about uh, over 20,000 people working for him. And he wrote this book called Chasing Daylight. And it starts off as follows. Page one, paragraph one, line one. He says, I was blessed. I was told I have three months to live. And he explains that he was diagnosed with late stage of brain tumor cancer. He had two brain tumors the size of golf balls in his brain. And the doctors told him, you've got three months. That's it. And they gave him an interesting choice. They said to him, either we can give you medication that can prolong life, but it will take away some of your mental functioning, or you can continue living as, as is. You'll die a bit sooner, but you'll die with your full mental functioning. They said that the brain tumor wouldn't affect any much of his functioning and his speech. But, it, you know, as, as it gets, as it gets um, closer to the point, obviously he will, you know. So this was the choice. And he decided. Very frightening prognosis. Very, very. And he decided not to take the medication. Hmm. And his reason for it, he said, is that he wanted to make the most of the time that he's got. And in this book, he speaks about his last hundred days alive on earth. And the last chapter is written by his wife after he dies. It was the most I was sobbing by the end of it. It was incredible. But his wisdom was amazing because he, he writes such beautiful things about time. And, 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 and they really are truths. And he says, for example, why do we have to be told that we're going to die to start living? And he says, you said all over the place, you see people who get diagnosed, like in his situation, he says, all of a sudden they change their life. They start living differently. They start doing things differently. He says, why do we have to be told that we're going to die to start living? He says, from the moment we're born, 
we're dying with a terminal illness of time. But we don't view it that way. We mm-hmm. think we're going to live forever. forever. And he says, you know, in his, in his wallet, he had a picture of a plot of land that him and his wife were going to build their dream um, house on. And he said, now it will remain empty. And he said the most interesting thing was he said that his biggest challenge now that he's dying was to make the most of the present. He said his diary at work, his calendar at work was full 18 months in advance. If you wanted to see him, the first time you'd be able to see him is 18 months. That's how busy he was. And he said now his biggest challenge was making the most of the present. He said we either live in the past or the future. Either I'm thinking about something that's going to happen in five minutes, ten minutes, five hours, five days, or five months. Or I'm thinking about something that happened ten minutes ago, half an hour ago. He says, so we're either living in the past or the future, but very rarely do we live in the present and make the most of the present right here and right now. And he says that was his challenge. And he says that's a challenge that we have to try and, and do. And he says this is, this is the message that he wanted to give over to people is making the most of the time, being present, being cognizant, realizing how precious time is and not to just waste it, not to just let it pass out by, but to be actively involved in living and making the most of it. Do you know, that is so fascinating and, and incredibly moving. But it makes me think of a lot of people that I know and have known in my life who have worked towards retirement and everything has been planned towards retirement. We'll go on overseas trips. We'll go around the world. We'll go here. We'll go there. And nothing has been for the present, but everything has been planned for the future. And yet what happens? They retire and often don't live to see what they had planned for their future because their future is actually past. It's over. They're gone. Yeah. And that's, and that's, if you look at the statistics and the research, as soon as people retire and they've got no more meaning or no more purpose to live for, their death rate increases drastically for people once they've retired. Mm-hmm. I, and, and that's a scary thing because the, in Reality, there is no such concept of retirement. Why? Because I should always be wanting, I should always have a purpose, something to strive more. I might not be working, but that doesn't mean I don't have a purpose or a mission or some way I can make a difference to the world around me. Or a task to do. Yes. And it is. It is about um, reaching out. You know, reaching out, we reach in. And by reaching in, we do continue to live. Yeah. My job is just something I do. It's not necessarily who I am. And I have to realize the difference. My time is more than just what I do at work. It's the way, it's the person who I am. It's what I'm achieving with the time that I've got. What am I doing? Am I passing through and spending the duration? Or am I actively living every single moment that we can? It's a beautiful thing. It is. And the concept of time is amazing. And it's something that philosophers have been debating, this the nature of time, even before Aristotle. How do we know time exists, they, they, were, they asked. Does it have a beginning and an end? Is it a straight circle? or Is it straight or a circle? All animals except humans live in, in a continual present with no sense of past, present, or future. So actually, it is our gift. This t- uh, it's a gift of time. It is. Knowing that there is time. Yeah. You know, our sages tell us the most beautiful thing. The, the Hebrew language is not just definitive. It's more descriptive of what something is. So, for example, the Hebrew word for time, one of the words is called zman, which means time. But what is the root word of it, the essence of it? Um, if three men are sitting around and they're going to and, they, and they've had bread and they're going to bench, it's called a mazuman. And you find all these words. And what really is it? It means to be prepared. 
Zman and Mazuman all come from the word to be prepared. It means that our time is prepared for us. How much time we have in this world, we do not know. We do not know how much time is left. We have to make the most of it, and therefore our time is prepared. The duration that we have in this world, we do not, have, we do not know how long that will be. Our obligation is to make the most of the time that we've been given, because we do not know how long that will be. Our time is prepared. That's mm-hmm. God-given. But we have to make the most of, of those moments, because we don't know when the end will be. So our destiny is preordained, but we have to live Within that destiny. Great. Our time is preordained. How much Absolutely. time we'll have, we don't know. Please God, it will be 120 years, but we don't know. Our job is not to know how much time we've got. Our job is to make sure that every single day we can account for, every single day we can look at ourselves and say, wow, today I've grown. Today I've done something meaningful, purposeful. Today I've done something that has brought meaning to others, meaning to myself. I feel I've achieved something with what I've done with my time today. Yeah, when, when I asked them as well, when I went around and I said to them, can you think what you did last week? Yeah, even last month, even last year, how much time do we remember of what we've achieved with what we've done? Can I look back in the night and think throughout my whole day and say, wow, I remember I achieved a lot today. And if not, then I've just passed through and spent the duration. I haven't actively lived that day. And therefore, each day we should be asking ourselves these questions. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? What is my goal? I should wake up every morning and say, what is my goal for today? What is it I would like to achieve by the end of today when the day ends? What is it I would have liked to have achieved from my time today? Can I look back and be proud of my time? And that is that is so important. And, and how often can we actually say that? And how often does a day pass and by the end of the day we actually think, well, what did I do today? Exactly. Now, I know that you also told them Many things about the time they spent with children and the time children and adults spend in front of TVs and things. I'd like so, you to share that. With pleasure. So I was just, I was just again, talking about the concept of time. And I was sharing with them, where do people spend time today? What do people spend time on? And I showed them a whole lot of research and a whole lot of statistics on it. And one of the things I love sharing with people was one statistic I found a number of years ago. And I'm not sure what the updated statistic on it is, whether it's gone up or down. But I was just sharing with them that it's not about what people are watching, but it was more how much time people are spending watching. So, for example, um, it spoke about the number of hours per day that a TV is on in the average home, and that was seven hours a day. Number of minutes that a child will spend watching TV per week was 1,680 minutes. <gasps> Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not discussing, again, what they're watching. I'm discussing for 1,680 minutes, they're spending time in front of a TV or in front of a screen. What are they doing with their time? Right? Never mind what they're watching. We can discuss that a separate time. But what are they living the most? And then I brought an interesting statistic. And it said the number of minutes per week that parents spent in meaningful conversation with their children. And we went around, and meaningful conversation is things that are really meaningful. How are you? How are you doing? Are you in love with anybody? Is anything happening? It's going to really meaningful things, not just, hello, how are you? And the answer to that question was three and a half minutes a week that parents are spending in meaningful conversation. And people were like horrified. I said, think about it. So when I was giving this uh, lecture in New York once for Arachim, I was at, I was at a seminar, and um, one of these American women came up to me, and she started screaming at me, how can it be? It can't be. You're lying. I said, look, that's the statistics. I said, have you got your daughter here with you? She said, yeah, we're here as a family. I said, great. Go and ask her what she thinks it is. 
And she went and she asked her daughter and she came back about half an hour later all uh, sheepishly. And I said, yes, what did your daughter say? She said, my daughter said five. So she said, but I don't, I don't understand. You know, how can it be? So I said, well, let me explain it to you. I said, there's a difference in meaningful conversation and just spending time with someone. I said, being in the car with them, is the, is the radio on? Are you talking to somebody else? Are you actually talking and spending meaningful conversations with them? Or is it just superficial? Again, are you making the most of the time that you've got? And it was a fascinating, people are horrified. So then I shared with them another statistic and I said, well, let me ask you this. I can understand parents don't see their kids a lot. I said, okay, as a couple, how many hours or how many minutes a week are you spending a meaningful conversation with your spouses? And you should have seen the dirty looks I got from people. What? Like, people really do that. I said, yes, meaningful conversation as a couple. You know, what do we want for our kids? Where are we going? Are we, you know, do, are we having a good marriage? Are there things we can fix? Are there things we can't fix? And people like looked at me like, no. Yeah. So I said, okay, minutes a month? And they were still like, I'm not so sure about that. I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. And then I asked them a third question. And I said, okay, I can understand well, with your kids that are at school, spouses, we don't see each other a lot. But let me ask you this. How many minutes a week are you spending in meaningful conversation with yourself? And then people looked at me like really strange. They thought, isn't that like for well-padded rooms and, uh, you know, those lovely, beautiful jackets where you get to hug yourself? And I said to them, you can, you can, it's good to talk to yourself. It's good to argue with yourself. I said, if you lose the arguments to yourself, then you can come and see me. But we should be spending time with ourselves. We should be, you know, I'm driving somewhere. So do I have the radio on? Turn it off. Spend time with yourself. Where am I going? What are my goals? What would I like to achieve? How many minutes do we spend in meaningful conversation with ourselves? Something the, that Rabbi Nachman talks about, about going into nature and actually communing with yourself and with Hashem. Yeah, I remember reading a story. So, so since you mentioned Rabbi Tversky, he brought a story once where he said he was the head of a psychiatric hospital of 300 patients. And uh, he needed a break from it all. You can imagine. So he said he went to a health spa for a couple of days. And he booked himself in, and oh, he thought this was heaven. The first treatment was a beautiful jacuzzi, and he sits with all the jets and the water, and oh, he says, this is heaven. And he, and he gets out, and he puts his gown on, and he's walking out, and uh, he says to the attendant, I'd like to go to the next treatment, and says, sorry, so this is a 15-minute treatment. You've only done nine minutes. You've got to go finish the treatment. And he said, no, I'm happy to move on. He said, sir, the treatment works. It's a 15-minute treatment. You can't move on till we're finished. Okay, he gets back into the water and he says the next couple of minutes were the most excruciating minutes of his life. And he said it's not because the jets went any faster. It's not because the water got any hotter. He said because what happened in those next couple of minutes is that he realized he did not know the person in the room with him. He said you can be the head of a psychiatric hospital of 300 people but yet not know who you are. And he said that silence and that having to spend time with himself was the scariest moments that he ever faced. So he was the person in the room with himself. I don't know. That's, he just brought the story. I'm not sure, sure if it was him or not. Amazing. But that's a powerful story. Oh, we can do really all these powerful. things. And again, it's the same thing. We're running. We're doing all these things. But are we spending time with ourselves? Are we growing? And are we making it meaningful? Very fascinating. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Alon Joseph, and our topic is time. 
I must admit, I am finding it incredibly fascinating what you're having to say, um, Alon, really. And it's making me think so much of time. And I just wanted to share with you an article that I read. As I get older, I'm also questioning time. And it's the, the, the question was, um, where did the time go? And it was a middle age and older, uh, older adults often make this remark. And this was um, um, an article that I, that I read um, which says, Why does time seem to speed up with age? And doctors in a department of psychology and brain science at the University of California have done research on this. And it's actually quite quite amazing that there are good reasons why older people may feel that way, uh, that time is, is rushing by. Um, because it says that in 2005, different psychologists surveyed 500 participants ranging in age from 14 to, 40 to 94 years about the pace at which they felt time moving from very slowly to very fast. For shorter durations, a week, a month, even a year, the subject's perception of time did not appear to increase with age. Most participants felt that the clock ticked by quickly. But for longer durations, such as a decade, a pattern emerged. Definitely, older people tended to perceive time as moving much faster. When asked to reflect on their lives, the participants older than 40 felt that time elapsed slowly in their childhood, but then accelerated steadily through their teenage years and early adulthood. Would you agree with that? I do. I do. I mean, time again, it's a perception. It's how we relate to it. It's what we do with it. You can find people who in their 80s and yet they're still as vibrant and energetic as people in their in their 20s. And that's exactly what they go on to say. There are good reasons why older people may feel that way when it comes to how we perceive time. Humans can estimate the length of an event from two very different perspectives, a a prospective vantage while an event is still occurring or a retrospective one after it has ended. In addition, our experience of time varies with whatever we are doing and how we feel about it. In fact, time does fly when we're having fun. So there you are. Yeah. And it's so true. You know, when I was sharing with them as well, I was I, I, I was just talking about how time is such a precious commodity and how we relate to time. And you mentioned some beautiful things there. And if you look at how people relate to time and cliches that we have about time, you know, every parent will will say to their child, stop wasting time. If you, yeah, Absolutely. Um, or time is of the essence. All, all these things, time is money, all these ways that we, that we relate about it. One of my favorite ones is a group of people standing around and say, you know, let's kill some time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the favorite one, you know. Um, someone who, who's, who's in prison, they're serving time or they're doing time. We say to people, thank you for giving of your time. Mm-hmm. We talk about it as something so precious, and it's, and, but yet do we live it like that? And that's exactly what you're saying is that mm-hmm. are we making the most of what we've got? When we, when we love time and we're enjoying it and we're making the most of it, it's the most beautiful thing. You know, you can see people at work as well, people who love what they're doing. Time goes by so quickly. And people, oh, still got so many hours left. 
Yeah, when we look at time like that, do we want to wish it away or do we want to wish we had more of it? Absolutely. And it's that, you know, it's time expendable. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the, the most beautiful thing about it is how we perceive it, as you said. And, uh, and, and, and again, I shared with him another beautiful poem. Mm-hmm. About it, and, and and it was an analogy that went like this. I said to them, "Imagine your bank manager phoned you for a good reason, and he said, you know, congratulations, you've won a prize.' And you say, "Yes, what's the prize?" And he says, "Well, you know, for the next week, we've decided that uh, we, we had this big competition, and you were randomly chosen. And um, for the next week, at twelve o'clock every single night, we're going to be giving you eighty-six thousand four hundred rand into your bank account." And you say, "Wow, that's fantastic. That's great. But what's the catch?" There's enough. Couple of the uh, T's and C's, but otherwise nothing. You say, okay, what are the T's and C's before I accept it? And they say, well, you can't take the money out and put it into another account. You know, so, so you can't withdraw, put it in somewhere else. And um, whatever you leave in your account at eleven fifty nine and fifty nine seconds, we're gonna wipe away. And at twelve o'clock, we'll give you another eighty six thousand four hundred rand. That's it. Simple rules. Are you willing to accept it? You say, well, of course. And if you said to that person, okay, at the end of each day, 11.59 and 59 seconds, how much of that 86,400 rand would would you leave in that bank account? Nothing. Nothing. And everybody says that, right? You would buy fizz pops for 50 cents, whatever they are. You you would buy something to make sure that you have used every single cent. In that time limit. Yes, because you you know whatever you don't use, the bank's going to take away. So Mm. I'm going to make sure I'm going to use it. And the analogy went as follows. It says each of us has such a bank. Its name is time. Every morning it credits you with 86,400 seconds and every night it writes off as lost whatever of this you have failed to invest to good purpose. It carries over no balance. It allows no overdraft. Each day it opens a new account for you. Each night it burns the remains of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. You must live in the present on today's deposits. Invest in it to get in the utmost in fulfillment, health, happiness, and meaning. The clock is running. Make the most of today. That's so true. You know, that, that is what Viktor Frankl calls the demand quality of life. That um, life demands of us moment by moment that we make choices. That we live our lives. It is the demand quality, what we choose to do with that time. But it, it, there is a demand to it. Yes. And you can waste it or you can use it. I remember reading in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He said such a beautiful thing. Someone asked him, what is the meaning of life? Everybody wants to know. So they go, you know, you go to the gurus and ask him. So they asked him, Dr. Frankl, what is the meaning of life? So he said, my dear man, do you play chess? So he said, yes. He says, let me ask you, what is the most important move in chess? So the man says, obviously, checkmate. He says, no. So he said, the first move. He said, no. So he tries all and he says, no. So he says, Dr. Frankel, what is the most important move in chess? And Dr. Frankel answered and he said, my dear man, the next move. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, that is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is not it's not it's not a big answer. He says every single moment are you living it? Are you making he says if you're doing something that's adding meaning, that is the meaning of life. That every single moment, that next move that I'm making that next decision, that next action, is it adding meaning? Is it bringing me closer to my goal? Is it helping me achieve the things that I want to achieve? Yes, then it is a meaningful move. 
And he says that is the answer to the meaning of life. Mm. It is making the most of all the choices that we have. It's about what we choose to do with our time that will determine whether we have lived a meaningful life or not. That's very profound. Yeah, I loved that. I thought very, it was great. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought it was great. I'm pleased you quoted him. I love quoting him. I know. Right? <laughs> That's, That's why, I why did. you did it. <laughs> oh, now, tell me what else you spoke about to them that, that they found so fascinating. So I, so I shared with them how I came up with this topic. And, uh, and how it all started. And it started many years ago, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of the talk. Um, I was teaching at King David Linksfield, and I spent a lot of time with my students in, outside the classroom discussing life and meaning and all, all the good stuff that, that, that we should be teaching our kids in school. And we had a lot of open discussions. And one day, one of my students came in, and, and he said to me, I've got a question for you today. And I was like, great, I love questions. What's your question? So he said to me, what's your most meaningful lesson? And I said, whoa, that's a good question. He said, you know, is it a poem, a saying, a quote? What really is your most meaningful lesson? He says, yeah, I'd, I'd like to learn something from you. And uh, I thought, wow, that is such a beautiful question. So I asked the class and I got everybody to write down their answers. And, and in all my classes, I went around and asked everybody, what's your most meaningful lesson? And people gave me some of the most incredible answers. The insight was just, it, was, it blew me away. It was phenomenal. And I loved the question and I still ask so many people. See, in one of the classes I asked, one of the students put up his hand and he says, I'll share mine with you. And uh, he said, you know, a couple of days ago, I was watching TV and it's when Vodacom had just launched their for you per second billing. That's how long ago this was. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, there he is. He's watching TV and this advert comes on and this big clock comes on with this big red hand and it's going tick, tick, tick. And it says, you've got 86,400 billion seconds to live. And it's got this whole thing. And it's and it's ticking and it's going and it ends off and it says make every second count, and it goes off and he sits there and he says he hears this little noise going tick, 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 and he looks down at his watch and he sees that little red hand going and he goes ah and he starts freaking and he says what am I doing with my time what what you know my seconds are passing me by they're not gonna come back. They're not going to ever be lived again. If I'm not, if I'm not utilizing them now, they're going. And he said he just sit and he just sat there watching this red hand going tick, tick. And he says it was a life-changing moment for him to realize the value that once a second has gone, you can never get it back. That moment is now part of history. And what did you do with it? Did you capitalize on it? Those eighty-six thousand four hundred seconds are seeds. Did we plant them? Did we utilize them? Did we use the, the utmost potential that they possessed? And I said to him, whoa, I love that. I'm going to make a whole talk on it. And I did. Well, <laughs> and that's what I've been developing. At that age, to have, uh, to have that sort of question and answer is absolutely amazing. You, you actually was, opened his mind to it. And, and he opened your mind to a whole new potential as well. Yeah. And that's what got me thinking about this whole concept of time is that it's true. And, and, and after that, I started looking so much more into time and realizing how precious it is and how we talk about it and how we live it. And that's really what got me on this whole journey of, of, of are we making the most? Are we passing through and spending the duration or are we actively living the time that we've got? And perhaps it is time for us to ask, does our attitude serve us or do we need to change to become the best person we can become? 
Agreed. And it's such a big question, I think. And it's, it's, it's almost that in life we have to go through this thing of asking ourselves, what am I doing with my time? What is my time all about? Am, mm. I, am I utilizing it to its fullest potential or not? And the, you know, you can also end up going to the opposite extreme where you drive yourself absolutely my sugar thinking, oh, every second, am I doing this? Am I doing that? And that's not how time's meant to be lived either. It's about an awareness. It's about a cognizance. It's about this is what I would like to achieve with my life. And every day, am I getting closer to that goal? Am I achieving the things that I want? And if I'm not, then change it. And if I am, do more of it. But as Eugene O'Kelly said, that we have to view it as something as something so special because we don't know when that end point will be. That that's I think that's what Viktor Frankl calls the transitory nature of life. The fact that there is a beginning and and end to it. And that, you know, we've got to understand that within that time we have potentialities. Yes. That we have to fulfill. We've we've got to look at those those times so that at the end of our lives we don't say what was the point of my life? Exactly. And also, you know, the big word that so many people live with is regret. Mm. This big mm. word we look back and we say, oh, I wish I would have or I knew that I could have. Why didn't? And if we're making time and we're living time properly, then we tend to have less regrets. So true. Can I quote Victor Frankl again? Please do. Am I going to bore you with never, it? You can never <laughs> bore me with Victor Frankl. You know that he does say that man... Usually, as as man gets towards the end of his life, he considers only the stubble fields of transitoriness and he overlooks the full granaries of the past. So we, we hook ourselves into what we didn't do, not what we actually did do. And he says we're in, in actual fact, if we looked at the full granaries of our past, we will see certainly the mistakes we have made, but the loves we have loved, the, the lives we have um, touched, the t- lives that have touched us, the deeds that we have done well and the joys that we have had. And also, he says, the sufferings that we have heroically taken on. So it's not to look at a life that is empty and that the granaries are actually half full. It's like that half full cup. Yes. It's actually to realize, have we, and are we, what we can do while we are alive? Are we filling our granaries? Um, he talks about the pessimist who resembles a man who observes with fear and sadness that his wall calendar, from which he daily tears a sheet, grows thinner with each passing day. On the other hand, the person who attacks the problems of life actively is like a man who removes each successive leaf from his calendar and files it neatly and carefully away with its predecessors after having first jotted down a few diary notes on the back of what he could still do or should do. He can then reflect with pride and joy on all the richness set down in these notes, on all life he has already lived to the fullest, on the time he has spent, and what reasons has he to envy a young person when he's still got time to live. Would you agree with that? I would agree with every single word of that. That's beautiful. That's incredible. It's, it's, It's beautiful. We're going to wrap up, but can we just stop with one poem I want you to to read, uh, and that's that beautiful poem. So I I love ending this talk off with this poem. It's one of the most beautiful. It's got a whole story behind it, but we don't have time for the story. 
But it was one of the most beautiful poems and one of the most incredible stories I'd ever, ever read. And this is how the poem goes. It's called The Dash. And uh, it's written by Linda Ellis. And that was part of the whole story behind it. But I'll share it with you and you can tell me what you think of this. It says, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of her birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth. And now only those who love to know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left. You could be a dash mid-range. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel. And be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that the special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? Isn't that absolutely beautiful? And in my dash, you are definitely coming back on this show. <laughs> and thank you so much, Rabbi Alon Joseph, for sharing this time with me. Thank you so and much. And with it's our listeners. Such an honor to be with you again. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.